Hello and welcome to the Non-Breaking Space Show. Our guest for this episode is Karen McGrain. Karen is on faculty of the MFA in the Interaction Design Program at School of Visual Arts in New York, where she teaches design management. She's also the author of Content Strategy for Mobile, published by A Book Apart. You can find Karen on the internet at karenmcgrain.com and on Twitter at Karen McGrain. And as you'll hear in this interview, it was recorded in the lobby of a large echoey hall during an event apart in Austin. So our apologies for the audio, but great conversation trumps poor audio. Am I right? We pick Karen's brain about the internet, content, and website building, and how to give a great talk. Christopher Schmidt flies solo for this episode, along with random groups of folks in the background, as well as a few police car sirens. More info and past episodes of this show can be found at nonbreakingspace.tv or on Twitter at NBSPTV. NBSPTV. Thanks for listening to our show. We'd love it if you'd leave us a rating or review in iTunes. It helps to get the word out about the show. And now, one more time with the word show, on with the show, enjoy the show. Good to see you, and I uh, just want you to know that there's like, I think there's a registration for this conference that's over there on this floor. Okay. It's going to start in a half hour, <laughs> so we might get some more friends okay. joining us, so yeah. So, yeah so It'll make it sound like we're super popular. Yeah, it's just like, like, wow. We're at, we're at a fancy cocktail. Yeah, we had, just, oh, they had a big crowd for that show. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> awesome. But uh, we're at the uh, Evan Park, Austin, so we're so glad you could take some time out to, to be on the show. So um, one question we, we almost ask every guest is, how'd you get into the web? Like, how, how'd the web find you, or yeah. you find the web? How, how'd you get into that? Yeah. I, I think I'm one of, like, the strangest people in this profession in that I, like, came in directly through the front door, and I've never done anything else. So yeah. I um, have a graduate degree in human-computer interaction and technical okay. communication from RPI. And I was there in 95 through 97. RPI? RPI, what's RPI? Rensselaer Polytechnic Institute. Okay. Yeah. And I was there in like 95 through 97, like when the web was just taken off, and yeah. it was amazing. Like, So your courses could just, it fell right into the whole like... I web. fell directly into it. It right. was like, I got, um, yeah, my, all of my like graduate training is essentially in how to be a UX designer, how to be an information architect or a content strategist. Okay. And once I left grad school, I got a job at... Razorfish. Oh, well, okay. And uh, I was one of the first, like, 30 people there. Oh, really? When I was the first person with any sort of UX background. Okay. And so where the first history. 30 people there that was UX or 30 people that were at Razorfish? 30 people at Razorfish oh, total. Wow, awesome. total. Cool. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I have much respect for Razorfish. And so, yeah. Awesome. How was working at Razorfish and what was that like? That's one of the few companies I've never, like, visited or, or seen during the... Uh, I guess the blow-up days of the boom or whatever. So it just came, came. What was it like to work there? And, and it was just like you hated it. I don't know what it was. I don't know. Maybe you liked it. It was on. Yeah, it was. It was a great place to work. Yeah. And you know, it, those those days were so crazy for everybody. Mm-hmm. But I think they did a really nice job of of building that brand, and that's why that brand survives. I mean, it's been yeah. through. I can't even count how many mergers and acquisitions, yeah. but that was the brand that survived. And I, I mean, I can remember being there after they did the big round of mergers, like during the dot-com collapse, yes. where they had rolled up several companies of, of mm-hmm. various types into what into that one company. And they, they had their choice, essentially, of which brand they were going to keep. And even people who, even people who didn't come out of Razorfish and even people who 
weren't even necessarily a fan of what the brand stood for at that point were still like no this is the strongest brand it's the most well-known brand it's the one that most closely is identified with what we want it to stand for so let's keep that brand and that you know for anybody who's ever struggled to gain recognition or market a company or service to realize that that how hard that is to do Mm -hmm. and especially when you look back like this was pre-social media. Like, yeah. pe- they got people to know the name of an internet company before right. anybody was using the internet. Right. Yeah. The st- standard practice is for a company buy the buy the company, and then maybe merge the name to like brand A, brand B. Yeah. For a year, and then like, oh, yep. we're now like brand A. We, yep. You know, like so. Yeah. So the, lo- the, the transitional lockup. <laughs> yes. Like we embrace and then stand <laughs> ourselves into. But uh, and so you're. I got the title just right. I'm gonna get the title wrong. Uh, VP, National Lead for User Experience. That was what I, that, that's what I did at Razorfish when I left. Okay. So I was running the practice nationally yeah. and running the group in New York. Mm-hmm. So my team in New York, I think, was 50 or 60 people full time, and you know another mm-hmm. 20 contractors. Yeah. And then I think the group nationally was a couple hundred, few hundred people. Oh, wow. So how does one? manage that and, and do that you know I don't miss it <laughs> <laughs> I honestly so I, I teach design management in the interaction design program at SVA right now mm-hmm. and a lot of what I teach in that program was things I learned the hard way from actually managing a team at Razorfish mm-hmm. and I think the hardest thing is that you it's like I woke up one day and I realized that my whole job was was like resource management spreadsheets. Yeah. That all I did was like hire people, yeah. fix things that were wrong on projects, staff yeah. people on projects. And it was, it, I had a moment where I'm like, is this what I got into this field to do? Mm-hmm. And even more than that, you start to, like, I think everybody who goes into management kind of struggles with, am I over investing in my management skills at the expense of staying on top of what's changing in the field right. and am I losing my touch with design or development or mm-hmm. you know how you get things done yeah. and so I think being aware of that and just recognizing that everybody suffers from that is a mm-hmm. it's like that's my best advice to people yeah. and you got to find a way to to balance out management skills with or man you know management activities with core tasks that you want to be doing right and whether you do that on a daily basis or a weekly basis or a monthly basis or right. over years. Right. And it's not just uh, a problem with our industry, but uh, any industry almost. Like, I can remember my high school, my physics teacher, or just like he stopped being a uh, physicist right. because he became a manager of physis- physicists. Exactly. And just like, I'm going to drop out and actually teach kids physics because I actually get to like, talk about physics and do physics experiments. Yep. On on a more you know daily basis than I would if I were, you know, to do you know manage stuff like that. So yeah. But yeah, but it's a definitely and then also you know and like going up uh, in the in, in this industry the last twenty years, I, I find people who, um, you know, they love coding but they rather be managing and and having that power and not power but like, you know, the responsibility that comes with that and that's cool. That's yeah. good. And then you know, but some people just they want to code or we'll be in, the, in the trenches, learning and building stuff like that and that's fine. So but. It's definitely like a, it's a battle, I think, you know, growing up or just maturing yeah. in your field that you need to be aware of. And, yeah, and I think that 
especially when you're younger, you're just kind of building your career, you, there's the sense of, oh, you just take the opportunities as they come. And it's right. like, wow, this is great. Someone wants to give me more money and more power. Amazing. Yeah. But at a certain point, you have to you have to seize for yourself the opportunity to say, is this actually what I want to be doing? Right. And can I shape my work so that it keeps me as happy as possible or so that I'm, I'm doing the right mix of things mm -hmm. that, that suits me? Right. And that often may not mean that you are in the position of most power or... Yeah that you're making as much money as you could even. Right. I mean, I, I can remember, I've been on my own now since, uh, running my own company since like 2006. Mm -hmm. And I can remember a friend of mine who is definitely somebody who wants to work in a corporate environment and yeah. wants, you know, wants the fancy job title. And he just looked at me and he's like, so when are you gonna get a real job? <laughs> and I'm like, I have a real job. <laughs> yeah. But it's not the same kind of real job that right. somebody else might have. Right. And just being aware of that and kind of going, oh right, nobody's gonna make me happy except me. Exactly. That's yeah. that's a that's a good lesson to learn as soon as possible. Yeah, because like I've been like on my own since 2001 or right. something like that. Yeah. And it's just been like there have been a couple job offers that are like, okay, that's exactly what I would love to do. Mm -hmm. Whereas like every task is something I would love to do. And it just never panned out for one reason or another or something like that. But yeah, it has to be something special to pull me away back into like, you know, a big yeah. corporate life. So yep. it's just, so. It's true. But a lot of money goes a lot, lot will buy me off. Just, but yeah, so, uh, but just to go back. So, so I, th I think also just like, once you realize you're staring at spreadsheets all day, that might be a, the sign to reevaluate. <laughs> Unless you really like spreadsheets, you yeah. know, if spreadsheets are what, what gets you up in the morning, yeah. then by all means, like, there are lots of jobs out there for you. Right. So, so, so you're looking at spreadsheets, just, no, I'm joking, but, uh, and you decided to just, well, what was the impetus? So it's just like, I needed to start my own thing or need to like, what was the, what was the, the change? I woke up one day and I realized that Razorfish had turned itself into an ad agency. Okay. And... I mean, when you've been, I would have been there for almost 10 years, and when you've been at a company that long, when you finally decide to leave, it's usually a lot of things. Yeah. But looking back on it, I think it really came down to a realization that I had gotten used to the fact that like, my value system and the value system of the company were very well aligned, mm -hmm. and that my career growth and the growth of the company were very well aligned. Like, mm -hmm. I felt like it had been such a natural progression right. that when all of a sudden the company's values started to diverge from none yeah. and their growth trajectory took them on a path, took the company on a path that wasn't a path I wanted to be on, right. it, it was hard for me. I mean, it was kind of, it kind of felt like, no, this, no, I don't yeah. want, no, this is not what we do. We care about user experience. We don't make microsites for laundry detergent. <laughs> And so I, I think at the time it was a, it was a good decision, but mm. it did actually come from a kind of an emotional place where I'm like, I don't want to do this anymore. Right. And in retrospect, it's like, it was still the right decision, but I could look at it with a little bit more distance and be right. like, oh yeah, you know, you, like my values were in doing something else and we had a good run and then it was time to leave. And then, um, this <laughs> is... So did you immediately start your own company or just take a break or? I started my own company like without even a tiny little break. <laughs> okay. Uh, and, and the company name is Bond Art and Science? Bond Art and Science. Okay. I've wanted to ask this question for a long time and it's probably a stupid question. Uh, how'd you come up with that name and does it represent anything? 
I didn't even come up with a name. Okay. So I started the company with a couple of partners, yeah. and they had named it before I even joined. Okay. And I will confess that I wasn't even a big fan of it. Okay. <laughs> and I shouldn't even say that now. It's like, it's like <laughs> uh, and so now I, I those partners have gone on to okay. do other things. And yeah. once again, it's like you know, as we were saying earlier, branding is hard. Yes. And I I had a choice of saying, do I want to just stick with this existing okay. brand or do I do I have any interest in rebranding? And okay. I was like, eh, you know, I have zero interest in rebranding and yeah. I already have business cards and right. I have these really nice like letterpress thank you note cards that yeah. have the logo on them. So I think I'm just gonna keep that brand until I've yeah, like run out of note. thank you yes. notes and then I might consider a new one. As a designer I totally understand where Yeah, it from. makes sense, right? <laughs> yeah, I like, totally understand that. <laughs> these these have to be going out. You know, I have to use these. There's I cannot not use these. Um, so yeah, so th- because that, that brings an issue of brand because um, I just think of you as, you know, Cameron Grand, the, uh, like, you know, what you represent, you know, in the industry and, and what you're doing out there. And then Bond Art Science always kind of throws me for a loop. And you got to have a legal entity to do business under. Yeah. And so I, I think for, this is what's been what's happened with the rise of social media is that it then does become your personal brand right. is... Can I put personal brand in quotes? Air quotes, um, yeah. I, and, I, I'll, and, I'll, I'll do those air quotes. Uh, and, and so having a company name is really not as important, but yeah. you do need a legal entity under right. which you can do business. And so how, how high up in the mix that brand gets yeah. is an interesting question. Right. I don't know. I, need, I, I kind of felt like I need a company website that yeah. makes it seem like, oh, no, I have a company and yeah. we got, like, contracts and lawyers and you can, like, <laughs> trust us to, like, yeah. do business with us. Yeah. Whereas, like, if it's just my name, that seems like, oh, no, you're just getting me saying stuff. And right, yeah. So, so no thought to, to, like, have a Karen McGrain, like, incorporated or LLC or... I am not incorporated under my own personal okay. name. Okay. No. Okay. And so what type of... Um, so you started in 2006 and working on projects and is it, is it, uh, what type of projects do you usually engage in? Like, like what type of work do you guys, do you do for, for clients? So I would say for, for good three, four years, I focused on doing straight up web design and development projects, yeah. mostly doing work for publishers and then also a fair amount of data visualization mm-hmm. work. And in the last couple of years, I've gotten out of that almost entirely. And I focus now really on just doing content strategy and information architecture projects. Mm -hmm. And a lot of it gets into more organizational strategy, process, workflow, Mm -hmm. UX strategy around we have a product which, you know, we know that we have this thing, this space that we want to do something in but we don't exactly know how to focus that or mm-hmm. we don't know how to prioritize. So help us figure out what should we build? How will we maintain it internally? Mm-hmm. How will we evaluate whether it's successful? Let's write write up descriptions of what it should be and how it should work and somebody else will design and build it. Okay. So so it's more like a, a, an efficiency type of, type of thing? Like, yeah, like- it's like I find myself when I talk to clients now like, increasingly sounding like a change management consultant and increasingly less like a web design or digital design Mm -hmm. professional. And I actually am very happy in that space because I, for years, have have realized that 
the success or failure of any of the projects that I've done has hinged almost not at all on the design and the development work and mm-hmm. has hinged entirely on internal processes and whether the team who's going to own that thing over time likes it, can manage it, can maintain it, is on board with it. Mm -hmm. And I think I really, I would rather focus on that space because I think that probably gets more leverage in terms of long-term value. Yeah. I mean, you definitely need to have buy-in, right, to like people who are there after you leave. Right. So how long is like your usual engagement with the client like in terms of like trying to get them to understand the I think it depends. I you know I have some clients that I've been working with for months or seemingly years. Yeah. Um, I would say I can probably do um, an initial content strategy especially if I'm talking about mobile stuff 4 to 6 months yeah. of work. But I also think that to oversee true long-term change that's going to require a program of services that may take 18, 24 months to mm-hmm. to implement and evaluate and refine. Okay. And so what type of services, I, and like, I, I think one of the examples you, you talked about, I mean, is, is, is the TV Guide one of your clients, right? No, that's actually not one oh, of my... Okay, I, I got that story from uh, Dan Saffer, actually. Okay. Like, and I, we spoke at a conference, and he told me that story. He's like, I used to work in TV Guide, and this is what happened. And okay. I've been, I got a lot of mileage out of that. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I lo- love that, because apparently I can remember it. But, uh, but, uh, but the goal with that was, like, the stories. And tell me if I, I'll, totally I'm wrong with that. See how much I retain from the talk in uh, Hawaii. Actually. Oh, we should do this as like a quiz. Like, yeah, so when I said this, what did this you take my, away? This is my interview of you. I understand. But no, um, uh, we're through looking glasses now. Um, yeah, so TV uh, Guide uh, pretty much imposed a standard that uh, we're going to write three summaries of three different lengths, you know, and just so we don't, because we don't know what's going to happen down the road because we'll have a long summary for sometimes and mm-hmm. a shorter one that we need to. And then, you know, so and this is still print before web and whatever. And so so they have at least three summaries for each episode, each for each series. So when it came time to, you know, to modulize their content management system so that they were they have they were ready to go deliver the right content at the right time to the right device or system. So that, is that is yep. that is that it? Yep, pretty much. Gold star. Yep. Yeah, no, uh-huh. it's it's when you think about having a writer write one of those program descriptions, yeah. to have them write three versions yeah. at that point is a fairly trivial additional effort. I mean, it, it's a little bit more work, but it, if you're writing one, There's you can really write bad TV shows out there. three. I just want you to know that. Fine. <laughs> it's really hard work sometimes. But to imagine what it would take to go back and rewrite those now, yeah. I mean, it would be a, a, a level of effort that would... Mm-hmm. Cert- there's no chance it would pay off. Right. And so I think... That, I like that example just because it, it makes it clear, like, oh, if they treated that stuff as just, like, words in, in Quark Express right. that they bolded, mm-hmm. there's no value to it. I mean, it's like, that's, that, there's nothing, there's no longevity to that. Right. But writing additional versions, adding the right metadata, now, now you have a product that you can continue to make money off of. Right. Like, they're still making money off of those Cheers program descriptions. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's, it's totally, people want to know, you know. You know so. But yeah, cause, and I think probably that example uh, hit home for me because I used to be a TV guide editor at my local newspaper. I was actually <laughs> an editor great. at my local newspaper. I was like, <laughs> oh my gosh. So, so yeah, and, my, and, um, and so we would get uh, the, um, it was actually a service we subscribed to that would 
pull down and figure out what channels we had. And yeah. But then I was responsible for the front matter of this TV magazine we put out every week. And so, yep. so I had to design it, make sure we had design and make sure we cover art and everything like that. And um, it's probably the easiest design project management job there. Um, and because like, you know, TV stations would, uh, networks would provide all the materials that you need. We just have to pick out which one was the best one for your, for your market. So that, but I always get the, the manual. I'm like, why are some abstracts longer than other like TV show abstracts? I'm like, why don't, why aren't they all the same? Why can't we just impose some consistency here yeah. and make them all the same? And no, because now I know like they just you know randomly pick which okay we'll put this one make it longer and some of that. So just because we we have it and we're ready to go, we can use it. And or this is the most popular show probably this week or something like that. Or or maybe NBC threw us a few bucks and we'll just have a longer you know summary for this for this, for this thing right there. But um, but yeah, so so maybe that's why that that marker, that kind of hit home. So my concern with that was that. Um, you can't really apply the TV guide example to every company like that. That, that would be be something that they would work. However, so would you say like the old adage is like with content strategy is that um, you know that effort like when we'll thumb and you just you can slap my hand if it's totally wrong, but uh, write content then cut it in half and then cut it in half again. Is that we could clean a lot of garbage off of the web okay. for sure. Okay. I sometimes hedge my bets when I talk about this because uh. people also then take that to mean, well, like we can, we should only be delivering the fun size candy bar version of our content on mobile right. and people, you know, no one on mobile will ever read anything. So we have to cut most of it out. And that in fact, that's not true. Right. It's like, if you have good content, if it is well-written and useful, mm-hmm. long content is not a problem. Yeah. So I think it comes down to saying we need better ways of talking about whether the content actually provides value Mm -hmm. and most organizations are absolutely publishing things on their website that doesn't provide any value and they've never sat down and said hey does anyone actually really want this or could we clean a lot of crap out of this text and Mm -hmm. tighten it up and make it easier to read sure probably right and like um, back in the day like in um, I was working for a design company um, and it was like you remember uh, WAP, uh, web, uh, web, and announced. I forgot what the acronym was, but basically it was a mobile uh, standard format for like for making a mobile device or mobile website on uh, Palm Pilots. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm gonna, and so I was in charge of building our mobile device. So in case you wanted to view our stuff and like download our Palm Pilot uh, experience, if mm-hmm. you will, I had to distill who we are and what we are into this small website. And it came down to uh, contact information, a paragraph about what we are, and um, you know some other like you know basic intro stuff. And I'm like, and, when, and I was looking at our flashy website. I'm like, wow, that, you know, this, is, this is what people need. Yeah. This is what people like we think they need on the website and stuff like that. So it's, it really kind of, I was like, oh, man, am I in the wrong industry? Because <laughs> apparently I'm like, I'm making things way too uh, flourishy for that. And then um, I think I'm not sure. This is an example that people use, and, and um, I mean, hopefully, hopefully this is your, your example. Hopefully, hopefully it is. But uh, I was doing research for, for this talk for this interview. But uh, one of the um, examples is the uh, Amazon app mm-hmm. and the experience right there is that um, the uh, you know if you look for a book on Amazon on your mobile device, they'll probably like have a, like a thumbnail of the, of the book and then like a short blurb and then with an the arrow to it, and then you just go. Is, is that one of your examples? Or? Yeah, I talk about the Amazon app quite a bit in yeah. terms of how they took 
their huge long desktop page. Yeah, which is like a trademark, right? Just like right. It's, it's what they're known for. Right? It's like it is the long. I swear, it must be the longest page on the internet. Yeah. And how they broke it down into a series of smaller pages yeah. for for different size, smaller screens. And then what happens when you do that? So, can you something that was a heading in the body of the page? Can you make that a link mm-hmm. on mobile? Can you truncate the body text? of something that was several paragraphs on the desktop and use just the first hundred words as a summary? Mm. Probably not. Or that doesn't, it's like, that is the lowest common denominator stopgap to get something up. But that's where you realize like, oh, this isn't just a uh, a interaction design problem. This isn't just a development problem. This is a content strategy problem of asking, oh, if we wanted to take a page on the desktop and break it into smaller pages on mobile, mm. how are we going to make sure that that experience mm. is still communicative to the user and helps guide the user to where they want to go? Right. That doesn't happen by magic. Yeah. Yeah. It, well, it seems like the Amazon example was sort of like we, we take this big honking page and then we, we look at the headings, subheads that we have, and just like, we truncate it, you know, make it smaller. But then we just say like, hey, if you want more information, we'll just slide over to, to the left with a link, and then here's here's all the detail that you want. Oh, you're done with this? We'll just go back to the to main page. And yeah. So it's sort of like, you know, how, how you joked about making uh, microsites. It's almost like every page, every book page now has its own microsite in a way. Mm-hmm. And that's, is that like a good solution for I would just say for everyone. It's good for 90% of the web because I feel like that's like an easy solution that people can like grasp onto, like a rule of thumb that that, that could be, or is that just like... Yeah, I I think... uh, I'm not not promising to write any more books in the near future, (laughs) but if I were to write another book, the thing that I really think we haven't figured out yet or spent even enough time discussing is what are the right navigation patterns Mm -hmm. for smaller screens and I think there's been a lot of fantastic work done on smaller scale websites Mm -hmm. to you know it's like if you've only got a couple of levels of hierarchy you can figure out how to go responsive or you can figure out how to how to handle that on mobile but the question I get asked all the time is like I'm a university I'm a healthcare organization I'm a large bank we have hundreds of thousands of pages and five levels of hierarchy and right. while it's nice to say well let's clean up some of the crap yeah that isn't ever going to solve the, the problem of okay fine you had five levels of hierarchy now we got got you down to three or four levels of hierarchy right but you still have massive sections of content and right. supporting the right navigation right. within those sections and across those sections yeah. it's something that i get asked about a lot and even i don't feel entirely confident that I have good case studies to point someone to of yeah. like, oh yeah, here's this university, they weren't responsive and yeah. you know, here's how they handled their 100,000 pages of content. Right. Well, like, um, I don't know what the example was, but there's a story, uh, it's Dr. Spock, not the you know, Star Trek one, but the, uh, the health doctor one. He wrote a, a book about uh, how to care and nurture your, your child, right? Your, mm-hmm. And um, so someone was like, hire these uh, experts look at their contents and like say hey um, what do you think of this you know and uh, and they came back into like after about like half hour or an hour I believe is how it goes they came back to like wow this is really this is really bad and he thought he did a really great job right it's like oh why he's like well that you know that Dr. Spock's book is actually like 
it, it tells you how to care and feed and nurture a human child, which has no instructional manual whatsoever, and it's really complex, right? That has only two sub, like one subheading, like there's a heading and a subheading. It doesn't go any deeper than three subheadings. So, so the fact that you have like five or six is really kind of troubling. Yes. <laughs> so, so it's uh, something like you're like, oh, oh, okay, well, we need to really yeah. fix that up a lot. So, yeah, that's uh, why I'm, I'm actually so enthusiastic about mobile is yeah. because constraints are good. Yeah. And to look at what you might actually do to support a good reading experience on mobile, to support a good navigation experience on mobile, it will probably mean solving some of the problems that we should have solved on the desktop a long time ago. Well, yeah. Well, as a designer, I love constraints because yeah. that's like, if you give me like a uh, limited, uh, limited budget, a limited canvas, I don't know what to do with myself. You know, it's just like, I don't know. It's like I need to have constraints to know what I can work against. Yeah. You know, and then it's like, someone's like, I don't know, it's like, it's not like a rocky thing, but it's just like, I know what, what wall I need to hit and then what, how I can like push through that or fake it or say like, you know, go around it. So, uh, my concern is with mobile is that things are happening so fast that, you know, we had desktop experience for 20 years, right? right? And we assumed 960 pixels wide and we assumed 72 PPI, right? That's like throwing Everybody out the window. had a mouse. Yeah. Everyone had a mouse. Everyone, you know, like, um, you know, it's just, you know, it was just, it's, it, it is what it was. And now we have uh, mobile devices, but it's now it's a plethora of mobile devices. I just want to say plethora. Uh, and now the, that hardware is changing so fast and advancing so fast, is what I should say, I that even a mobile device that you think of it, um, Matt Griffin has this thing of uh, saying, like, what's a mobile? Right? Like, now there's like mobile devices that are like almost like mobile laptops, if you will. And then I'm not even talking about tablets, I'm talking about like, you know, a mobile phone. Right? Just phones. Yeah. yeah. So even then, that's like, um, you're gonna have more content to fill up and so that. Um, any thoughts about that? Like, yeah, I, I mean, on the one hand, I'm a huge advocate for organizations investing in mobile, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm fond of pointing out that user behavior moves much more quickly yeah. than organizations do, and so the level of adoption that you see in the mobile space is so high right now, and the level of response that you're getting from companies is so not keeping pace with it. Mm-hmm. So, you know, on the one hand, I have my big stick out that's like, come on, guys, like, we gotta, you gotta start working on this. Mm-hmm. But on the other hand, like, I have so much compassion for all of these executives and decision makers and our clients and our stakeholders who, frankly, are sick of the internet. Yeah. And it's like, you know how tired we get. I mean, this is this is all we do all day long. And yeah. it's like, man, I can barely keep up with it. Right. And to put yourself in the position of an executive who is trying to make good decisions about what to do on mobile mm-hmm. and seeing how fast things are changing or you know, just not being able to get a straight answer about what should I do? Is it native apps? Is it responsive? Should I have a separate mobile website? Is that going to change 18 months from now and I'm going to yeah. have to throw away all of my work? Yeah. I have a lot of sympathy for people wanting to sit on their hands for a little bit and be like, hey, why don't you guys figure out what's going on here? Right. And once you do, then we'll build something. Right. Well, it's actually like when we do our, our summits, you know, we you know, you know do the content strategy summit, but we'll also do um, like CSS Summit or um, JavaScript Summit, you know? we get people who come to our summits, and um, and we we work hard to make sure we have actionable uh, uh, educational like speeches, presentations from speakers and stuff like that. Because we always get people who say like, "That's great. I have to still support IE version, whatever you know." And as long as I still have to support that, your fancy future doodad, uh, I can't implement, and I won't even give you brain space 
know, in my mind, I won't rent out my brain to even like think about your cool solution unless yeah. it supports it. But you know, it's going to be around for a while. Or I can support this. So I think that's kind of same thing. Like you have to have a um, if you actually have a solution or, or develop it, you need to make sure that you it's something stable, right? And yeah. that's one of the reasons why you when you go to a client and, and you want to make sure there's buy-in, people will actually implement it because right. otherwise, otherwise you're just like you know. Spit in the wind, you know. So. That's I think why for me I'm so interested in talking about strategy mm-hmm. and planning. Yeah. So, for organizations that recognize that mobile is important but haven't started actual planning for what they're going to do, mm-hmm. like even if you're not sure what what particular tactics you're going to use, you can at least put a plan in place. You can at least define a vision for how you would want people to interact on mobile. You can at least start evaluating your content, making you know, cleaning that up. Mm-hmm. You can start talking about what your content management system might need to do or how that should evolve in order to support multi-channel publishing. Mm-hmm. And all of those are things that you can be doing right now that don't involve like recoding the whole front end to make it responsive. Like, right. you know, or or more to the point, whatever particular implementation decisions you make, having put that strategy in place is going to help you make them mm-hmm. more effectively and give you more confidence that you're moving in the right direction. Right. I mean, there's no good, like, flip a switch that you need to worry about, like, there's, it's, or worry about, or, like, be happy about that. There's no, like, just turn on content management solution, you know, it's not going to happen, right? No. I mean, so, a lot of these things, I think, are three to five year oh, wow. trajectories to okay. get there, mm-hmm. and to get to, to evolve the content management system to support the kind of, of multi-channel publishing to support the process and editorial workflow that's needed for that it's going to take a while well let's if I can just contrast that with like the companies that you've uh, worked for um, uh, under you know your own company versus have you have you ended, um, let's make sure I got, have you actually worked with a, a university and ending with them yet? Or? I have done, I, so I teach at SVA and right. I have done a little bit of consulting with them. Right. Just. Well, well, like, well that's teaching with, with, with that school, but like, have you actually like interfaced with a college, say, or like, you know. Yeah, so I have done, I've actually done some consulting with, okay. with SVA as well. So, so like, so they can't, like, you know, you're talking about uh, uh, university with colleges with their own, like, different CMSs and stuff like that. So like, that's going to be like a hornet's nest, right? The higher ed space is, I actually have the most sympathy for them because they have the most demanding audience. So 50% of teens 12 to 17 and 50% of young adults aged 18 to 29 say that their mobile device is their primary way that they access the internet. That is, they are only or mostly accessing the web on mobile. And so if you're a university, mm-hmm. like that's that's your target audience and yeah. you need to be there. Yeah. But on the flip side, they have the most demanding infrastructural challenges around multiple content management systems, mm-hmm. completely decentralized publishing, right. no real way to, to impose anything right. organization-wide. And so what you're seeing now is like this increasing proliferation of individual departments or groups within the university putting out their own mobile apps or yeah. putting out their own mobile websites, adding new CMSs to support that. So mm-hmm. now you've got mobile CMSs on top of your desktop yeah. CMS. It's a mess. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's a total mess. And um, I mean, just, I, I don't speak very much, but when I do, I, it's usually mostly uh, high ed. Uh, talks because yeah, I saw you at the, P- the Penn State web conference. Yeah. And, um, and so I was there. I've been there. That's my second or third year I was there just oh, well. because I just feel like 
uh, those people, uh, those, those, they're just hardworking people, no budgets or limited budgets. Yep. Uh, you know, they do what the web developer or webmaster, if you will, in the 90s had to do, which is everything, right? From graphics, mm-hmm. content, to consulting, to dealing with everything. So, and, you know, anything I can do to help them out to, uh, to get them, you know, up to speed and help them out. And, you know, and maybe one day I'll say that it also supports IE. Maybe I'll say that one day, but uh, hopefully I get there. But uh, but yeah, so it's just you know that you know, and I used to work in higher ed, and so um, I didn't. Um, I was on the a couple of meetings with FSU, Florida State University's uh, website, you know, renovations or like you know, revamp or whatever, and that was just a big political football, you know. You know, one you know like the um, the communications department wanted it, wanted control of the, the main website. Uh, the uh, PR people wanted it. Uh, some you know communications college wanted it, you know it was just like all these people wanted it uh, for their own like you know uses and stuff like that just to, just be in control of it. However, they weren't saying like, oh well, who's actually coming to the website? You right. Know, who what who, does, who are you know, these people who yeah. want to come to this website? Right. What do they want? Yeah, and I felt bad because they actually got the football got kicked to the uh, uh, IT department who didn't want it at all. <laughs> so it's just like, it's just like oh, but uh, but it was like it was actually probably the best fit for them because the person who was in charge of that is. Just, was actually a stellar guy in terms of finding out the best solutions. And as a manager, we talked about earlier about like the person who wants to be a manager. I felt like he was a great manager person who could, who wanted to find the best solution for everything. So, but but still, yeah, you had that just nest of political snafus that deal with the university university websites. And now there's a uh, content strategy uh, conference for higher ed, right? Yeah, Confab Higher Ed. Yeah, and it's coming there in November. November. Yeah. So I'm really glad that's, that's around because that's. So, um, so definitely check that. So, so those. What type of solutions would you recommend for colleges or something like that? That would, if you know, I guess besides starting over, (laughs) (laughs) burn the whole thing down. It's for many organizations that I talk to. What I'm seeing is a trend toward more centralization. Yeah. So, the way I look at it is like we started in the early days of the web and management and ownership of the website was centralized in IT mm-hmm. and IT could become a bottleneck it wasn't close enough to the needs of the business or the organization that wanted to communicate and so we kind of took the pendulum the opposite direction and we decentralized everything we yeah. put in content management systems where the whole purpose of it was to to push publishing out throughout the organization to have each individual group HR and various you know, academic departments or business units be responsible for their own website. And the downside to that is proliferation of content, inconsistent tone, nobody really knowing what anybody else is doing, duplication of effort. And so what I'm seeing with a lot of organizations is a trend to pull that back in. Mm -hmm. It's like, here's what you do. You redesign your website, you put it in a new CMS, you take the keys away from everybody, and you have a centralized team that's not in IT, but is in the UX group or the marketing group or an editorial function. They are the expert users of the CMS, so they know how to, you know, like they know how to make that thing work, and they can have some authority over how they work with the various business stakeholders to say, okay, what's your goal? Why are you doing this? What do you want to achieve here? Okay, we're going to help you do this in the right way online. Okay. For a university, that is challenging. Yeah. Like their, I mean, their inherent model is decentralized and 
even suggesting it, they just kind of laugh at you. They're like, no, it doesn't work that way. So in those cases, I still think that we could be doing a better job with the CMS mm-hmm. to impose more, use the tools. It's like, let's get the robots to help us and have the tools have more constraints baked in or more, you know, more guidance Mm -hmm. in, I I talk a lot about the, like the WYSIWYG blob Mm -hmm. where we just gave somebody an interface on, you know, in their CMS that we're like, oh, it works just like Microsoft Word and you can put whatever you want in there. (laughs) Well, it doesn't. That's the thing. The web's not Microsoft Word. And so if we have content management tools that have style guide constraints baked into them and sort of guide content creators into how to add their content in a way that is aligned with the overall style and publishing processes of the organization and don't let them don't don't give them a box that lets them make it purple comic sans and float the text to the right because that's what they wanted how they wanted to decorate it I think I think that would help a lot and I know whenever I talk to people in higher ed they're just like oh no our users aren't ever going to go for that (laughs) but I I think that is in some sense an abdication of our responsibility I mean I know they want that but our job isn't always to give them what they say they want. Our job is to give them what they need. Right. Yeah. Well, that's that's a that's a age old question right there. So, like, are there CMSs out there? I, I you know, I'm not expert on CMSs. I will readily admit that that will like impose editorial controls on you know as people enter. In, in that's content. a design task. You okay. know, that's I guess that like that's the kind of thing that I do yeah. is say let's figure out what your editorial process and workflow and mm-hmm. governance model should be. Okay. And then the next question is, and then how do we, how do you think about the CMS and the tools that you're using as supporting that or facilitating that or enforcing that mm-hmm. rather than being just, you know, just this thing that publishes stuff to the web. I had, I had one client ask me like, so should we be thinking about our CMS as the printing press, or should we be thinking about it as like SAP for our website, like the, the overall business process consulting and workflow management tool that guides us through everything that we need to do? And I like that distinction because it's often not clear whether somebody thinks it should be the printing press uh-huh. or whether they think it should be helping them with all of their editorial tasks. Right. And there's not one right answer, or there's not one right place for that to be, but being able to talk to the organization about how much, how much do you want to do in this system versus how much do you want to do outside of it, right. and what constraints or guidelines or even just help or support functions do you want the CMS to do? Right. I think we could do a better job of, of having the CMS help us. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, my my view of it would be like to say like the Martha Stewart view, which is once I get a piece of information that solves a problem, I will store it away. And then once I need, uh, and I'll store that, and then I'll start another one, and I'll store another one. And instead of a printing press where I just print it out and I forget about it, it's in this database. And then once it comes time for the 12th Halloween issue about how to make cookies, right. I can go back and go pick that one up. Then I can pick another one that's over here. And then I have a, a whole new content piece from scratch. And then I'm ready to go. So it's yep. not like a printing press. It's just massive database that I can just pull from. And then you just, and if, if you have, and then if you go back to the TV, you know, TV guide example, 
you have like I have the small chunk, I have the big chunk, or I'm using the chunk wrong. Am I using the wrong? No, chunk? you're using chunks. Totally I'm right. doing because in your in your presentation <laughs> you talk about chunk and and also I can I can always think about Goonies when I think about that too. So I'm not sure. I don't. Do you remember the uh, Goonies at all? About the uh, chunk and Goonies. Oh yeah. The movie. Totally. Yeah. Sorry. Okay. Yeah, every time I see you, I team chunk. Like, Yes, I have to like I have to tweet chunk whenever I mean, your presentation. <laughs> so yeah, so basically you have this big database, and then you actually just editorialize it six ways a Sunday, pretty much, and then just you're ready to go. So yeah, so that stuff doesn't happen by magic, and yeah. it's easy to. I guess the the narrative flow mm-hmm. is something that's really easy to get lost yeah. when you're thinking about a very modular, atomized publishing model. Yeah, but. Yeah, that to me, that seems like a second order problem in a world where so much of our content is at this huge tangled mess of HTML mm. and it's very hard to separate out right. what's content and what's presentation. Right. So if we could solve that, right. or we are going to have to do a better job of that if we're going to get our content on all these different platforms. Well, I'm kind of and, and surprised, like even like, like 13 years ago, I would say that was a big problem. But is that still a problem where you have like, I think style in, in sure. Content. I mean, if you look at what blogging platforms, or yeah. if you if you look at the rise of blogging platforms as content management infrastructure, yeah. the idea that that what we have built for people is, you know, a big blo- a big box, a big text entry box yeah. that says content goes here on it, right. and you're allowed to dump whatever you want in there. The Word doc, example. Yeah, the okay. Word doc. I mean, I had somebody come up to me after a conference not just recently, and he was like. Thanks for that. Like, I, I forgot that we weren't supposed to just have a big box that says content goes here. And I laughed, and I'm like, oh, I know. And he was like, no, seriously, that's how we build websites. Like, we we hand off these, like, design templates to our clients, and there's a box that tells them, put your content in there. And we're kind of like, well, we can't possibly be responsible for what they put in that box. Yeah. No, in fact, we are responsible for what they put in that box or we should be doing a better job of, of figuring out, hey, what structure are we going to need in there right. and not letting them add a lot of, or being very careful about what kind of presentation cruft gets mixed up in there yeah. because you're going to have a whole world of hurt down the line if you have to strip all that out when you want to take it to another platform. Exactly, yeah. Definitely. So, yeah, because like, I mean, back 13 years ago, people were just like, images and mixing stuff and you know just font styles everywhere and you know, just like yeah. so so I thought like hey now we're like you know we're advanced you know we're we're uh, bipedal you know humans we can actually fix this out you know we've we've progressed since then I guess is my point so we can actually like the fact that people are, are still having problems with that is kind of like yeah there's always going to be a lot of backsliding okay. and when you when you really think about it it's that for all of human history, mm-hmm. up until this exact inflection point, there was really no way to separate the meaning and the content of a document from what it looked like. Right. Like, there just, I mean, it, it would almost be foolish to say, oh, like, I'm going to separate those two things out. Right. And so all of our cues about priority and weight and relationships and meaning, you know, meaning come right. through all those visual cues of where it's positioned, how big it is, what right. the typography is. And so it's very easy to see how people would just insist oh, yeah. totally, that they have to have those two things together. Oh, yeah. But guess what? It doesn't work that way anymore. Yeah. yeah well, we had like, to go and invent the internet and we broke that. <laughs> we broke human communication. Right. Yeah, because like um, I didn't know a design was a thing, right, growing up, right? 
and, uh, and then I went to school to become a designer. But it wasn't until I realized that, because uh, I just assumed like a billboard design was the billboard design. There was like no other possibility for that billboard design any other way than what I saw. The same game for like newspaper layout. That's just what it was. You know, I was going to question it. It wasn't until like later, like in high school, even that like, wait, this can totally be different. This is, can totally be changed. Uh, and trying to, and that started me on the path of like, what is design? And except, you know, taking content and trying to emote uh, a message from that. And uh, so that was, so now we have the separation, which is like, seems like been living with the web for so long. It's just like, it's totally natural in that off to yeah. have that separation of content and presentation. So I, I feel like it's something people on the web have, have been talking about for the last 20 plus years. Yeah. But actually, getting that into the world of, of real world publishing where right. actual human beings have to think that way that's that's going to be my life's work yeah and that seems you're, co- you're okay with that you're, the pressure's like oh I know I, I never get tired of it honestly yeah. I, it's funny I feel like a lot of the problems that I'm still solving today are the exact same problems I was poking at in 1998 99 yeah. and I never find them boring in fact I, they keep getting more interesting because yeah. the different executions and the different outputs for things are yeah. evolve and so I, I look to the future and it's like what happens when we when we really do have speech-based interfaces yeah. like what happens when now all of the content that we've created or some some form of the content we've created yeah. has to be accessible and navigable mm-hmm. in a completely audio environment. Right. That, I mean, that's that's the Star Trek computer, right? Yeah. And it sounds super futuristic, but you look at what Google's doing in their conversation group, you yeah. look at even, even the accessibility work that Apple has done right. with the iPhone, and you realize, like, this is not... This is not some crazy futuristic thing that's not going to happen in our lifetime. I don't know if it's going to be five years or 15 years before it becomes a reality, but it will. Right. And so that, to me, it's like, if we do our job right with content now, yeah. figuring out how do you genuinely separate content from form, yeah. we're going to be in so much better place right. when you have to truly separate content from presentation. Right. Yeah, there's a tweet that someone um, did about uh, um, he got his um, mom an iPhone, I believe, and then for the first time, so it was the first phone, iPhone, and then she sent her first uh, message through Siri, total voice activated, never yeah. sent it, so, and she just sent a text message to someone she knew without even, like, touching a phone, and yep. so, so how crazy is that, that just, like, so, yeah, definitely, I think five years old, maybe have Siri be actually to understand what I'm talking about. I don't know, maybe. Yeah, no, I mean, it's like, it's easy to mock Siri right now. Like, it is. <laughs> yeah. It doesn't work that well. But I always make the point that, like, touchscreens sucked yeah. for forever. Oh Everybody, I, I can oh remember God. people just saying, like, touchscreens don't work. They're never going to work. It's not ever going to be a viable technology. We've been iterating on this for 20 plus years now, yeah. and they don't work. And then one day they showed up and they worked perfectly. Right. Well, I remember, like, um, Epcot. With Epcot, like, with my my uh, really smart brothers and were really geeky and all that and they had this game where you had to move a taxi cab in a certain amount two minutes whatever from one point to another point it's a total simple game but you had to use the touch screen to do it <laughs> I, I could not get that taxi to rec- that screen to recognize my thumb or my finger or whatever to move it on the screen it actually took the whole entire time for me, and I'm like pressing hard. You're like, like ah, you're trying to angle yeah. your finger the right way. Yeah, and so, and then dinosaurs still roam the earth back then. But, um, but yeah, so like it's only been a limited time when touchscreens have really, like, I remember in 2005, you know, with the Microsoft's 
Slate, I believe it was called. Mm-hmm. That was still like not the greatest thing, and they were still, you know, producing them and people were buying them. So, um, but yeah, it's come a long way since then. So, yeah, definitely. But um, so cool. Uh, I just want to shift gears a little bit, okay? And just talk about uh, how awesome you are at traveling because you do a lot of. I am a professional business traveler. Yeah, I say I saw you at Penn State, but I saw you and then you were gone. Like you were like you did your presentation and you knocked it out of the park as usual, and then uh, you you left and so. Um, but I do want to talk about your presentation style, and then we'll talk about like traveling is a little bit. But uh, I like I you know you've you've spoken at uh, E4H events before, mm-hmm. and and you've, I've seen you speak elsewhere too. It's always like the way I describe it is like when Karen speaks, it's like uh, a cool, crisp uh, cup of water that like <laughs> you, and you drink it, and you realize every other cup of water you ever drank. Has been is terrible. It's like the worst cup. Of and this is and then and then um, that's when you first start, and then you keep on talking. And it's just like this most refreshing thing because everything you say is like yeah, yeah. That is so clear and crisp and refreshing that uh, you know I never wanted to. End. It was like oh, this is, it's been awesome. And so so to see you keynote and go all over the places has been like uh, totally. I don't want to say expected, but it's been like. Uh, I think just, you know, I'm glad to see you guys, you're out there just kicking, kicking butt and doing yeah. that. So, and well, that's, thank you. Yeah. yeah I love doing it. Yeah. And so anyone who's listening, who has haven't seen you speak, uh, just do yourself a favor and go, go speak. I just, uh, you're one of my favorites, but everyone's my favorite, but you're of my favorites. You're my favorite. Just as speakers <laughs> out there. So, 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 and because of that, cause like, I'm like, I'm also the speaker and, uh, when people hear me, they think of like, well, I need, I need to get a scotch because this guy's terrible. But so I want to say, how do you go about preparing your your speeches and, and your presentations? Like, what what type of if you're going to start something some from scratch, what would be the steps you would involve in, in making something? So I would start out by um, procrastinating for about two or three months. Done. Got that one. Uh, I and, and during the, in that time, I I'm always kind of noodling with things in my head yeah. I think I I find myself mentally structuring a new talk yeah. while I'm brushing my teeth or in the shower mm-hmm. kind of a lot but I think one of the things that is that that I chalk up my success to is that I will try to get through that period of procrastination sooner so that yeah. <laughs> I leave more time at the end for rehearsal yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I, I probably do exactly what everybody else does. I write some things down and right. lists. I move and I make some slides. Mm-hmm. I dick around writing things. I rearrange things. I delete things. Yeah. But eventually it gets to a place where it's stable. Mm-hmm. And I like to have that happen about three weeks before I have to give the talk. Okay. And it's so that I can spend a solid amount of time actually rehearsing it. Mm-hmm. So I work with a presentation coach. His name is Bill Smart. Yeah. He is he was life-changing for me okay. in that I've worked with other speaking coaches before, but mm-hmm. they all told me things that I already knew. Mm-hmm. And like, you know, you know awesome. it's like all it yeah. stuff, you know, make the words on your slide big enough or, <laughs> you know, speak loudly and project. That's not my problem. Yeah. What he did is I think he treated it like therapy. Yeah. And so he would listened to me present he made me watch videos of myself which was the the worst form of torture you can ever inflict on anyone but he held my hand while I was doing it and it was okay (laughs) and he would then ask me questions about why I was doing something a certain way why are you speeding up here why are you saying um so much here and it 
it wasn't that he was telling me, you're, you're talking too fast or you're saying, um, he was saying, why are you doing that? Right. And it forced me to ask myself, what, what, what's going on in, when I'm in this section? Am I, am I, do I not believe in what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. Or am I nervous about people not agreeing with me here? Yeah. And it removed a lot of those ticks. It made me realize like, oh, I can just focus on what I'm saying and why I'm saying it. I can speak more slowly. I can Mm -hmm. not have so many filler words. I can deliver it with more confidence. And it just made me a better presenter. And honestly, so much of that comes through just in rehearsal. Like you're never, if the first time you give a talk is when you're on stage, it's not going to be as good as if you've gone through it a whole bunch of times. Right. So, yeah, so I definitely, I like the three weeks, you know, definitely rehearse it beforehand. That's, That's the best thing. So, um, so many people don't, yeah. or you know, so many people are like, "Oh yeah, I'm totally gonna rehearse it like this one time." Yeah, mumbling under my breath here yeah. in my room, like you gotta stand up and give it. Right, even if it's even if it's in, a, in your hotel room. Even if it's in your hotel room, for sure. Yeah, yeah. yeah. even if you're if you're delivering it to your yeah. mattress, that's fine. Yeah, I gave my I, I won an award for a presentation, and it's directly a result of me speaking to myself in my hotel room. Yeah, like a number of times. Yep. So that's it. That. Really makes a difference. Yeah. So cool. So, um, so like, how how long how long ago it was? Uh, do you still talk to your, your presentation coach? Or yeah, I worked with him at the beginning of this year for the talk that I gave at AEA. We didn't work quite as much as we worked on previous talks okay. because I I kind of felt like I, I had it down. Yeah. But I I signed up for a few hours with him just to it, honestly it was so that I would force myself to take the time to rehearse it in (laughs) front of somebody else. And he gave me really helpful feedback, some notes on... He he, he will give feedback on a variety of things. I personally am most interested in feedback on delivery. But I got some comments on the slides and the design. and It just made it better. Cool. Awesome. So, is that... um, You don't have to answer the question, but, you know, just just your personal... But, um... um, just how, how long was the session, like, initially? Was it just, like, like uh, a, I think a boot camp thing? I think my first round of working with him, uh, I had a block of, like, yeah, it was either 10 or 20 hours. Okay. And so I would meet with him every week mm-hmm. for an hour or two. Yeah. And show him what I was working on. Yeah. And so I would start out with stuff that was actually fairly raw yeah. and I'd go through it and then as I polished it more by the end of it I had the top slides completely done and it was just rehearsing and rehearsing and rehearsing okay. awesome okay cool oh, that's, that's great yeah I've been thinking about getting a presentation coach or like doing more more lessons and stuff like that so just just to get more polished so it's, it, it's it's a worthwhile investment of both time and resources I do feel like it's also better just not just for speaking uh, conferences, but also just you know, I, companies and consulting and stuff like that. That it just it blends itself I think to other that areas. Being aware of your delivery and mm-hmm. and it's the kind of stuff that's very hard to be aware of mm-hmm. if you're just you inside your head yeah. thinking about how you speak. You, you don't you don't get the right coaching from yourself. Yeah. But having somebody else give some meaningful feedback on how you say things yeah. or. I mean, honestly, I think it's probably a lot of, of coaching that actors would get yeah. on how do you breathe, yeah. how do you make sure you're not trailing off, how do you, mm-hmm. how do you project what you're saying. Right. 
And that comes, yeah, it comes in handy in yeah. all kinds of situations. It right. comes in handy on the phone. It comes in handy when you're in meetings. Mm-hmm. It really, it, it makes you realize that there are some, just some simple tricks that can make you sound more right. confident. Yeah, and I think in our industry, like, I think, I'm gonna make a broad generalization, if you don't mind. Like, we have like a lot of introverts in our field. And yes, so, we do. So I think just in general, just a little bit of like, you know, maybe a, a improv or acting or just in presentation go a long way. Yeah. It doesn't be like forever, like a uh, like workshop, but maybe like a few days or whatever. It goes a long way, so. Yeah, yeah. I agree. Yeah. And then that way you just apply it to your daily work life and stuff like that. So, but, uh, but yeah, so cool, awesome. And then um, another thing I just want to talk about, like, how do you maintain traveling so many, so many days? Because you're like you're everywhere. Cause... This year has been a bit much. I'm going to confess. <laughs> I I will be doing less next yeah. year for yeah. sure. I am just very good at it at yeah. this point. Like I. I know how to pack. Yeah. I know how to get myself to the airport. Yeah. Like I know how to. I just know how to roll with that kind of stuff. Yeah. So it doesn't seem that challenging. Right. But honestly, it it does make you feel very fragmented. Yeah. Like you know, I I feel like I have more friends in other cities than I have in New York at this point, yeah. which makes me feel kind of sad. Yeah. Uh, or. Sometimes I get home and I feel like I don't want to enjoy what New York has to offer me anymore because I'm just so happy to be home. I yes. want to be home. Yeah. Yeah. And then I realize, like, why do I live in Midtown Manhattan then yeah. if, if I'm going to go home and not leave my apartment? Yeah. So, yeah, because um, yeah, when I first started uh, flying more or whatnot, it would just take me like a week to pack or whatever. And then right. now it's just like, you know, I have an hour to go. I have to get going. Yeah. Now, I. I I have very good packing strategies. I'm, I'm, sometimes I look at my suitcase and I'm just like, I did a good job here. What is a packing strategy? Because I want to know. I you know. have to roll your clothes. That is uh, the number dumb. one yeah. piece of advice that I could give everyone. You have to roll your clothes up into cylinders. You cannot fold them. Yes. It is a much more efficient, is a lie. space-constrained yeah. way to do it. It is also easier to see what you have. It works better on all fronts. Yeah. Beyond that, I think having a very limited uh, budget for shoes mm-hmm. is very important. Men get off much more easily than women do on this front, but you can't be bringing multiple pairs of shoes. You have one or two is all you can have. Yeah. And I have a toiletry kit where I have duplicates of everything, so mm-hmm. when I'm packing, I don't have to remember to bring oh, anything. Yes. I, have, I, I literally have every product that I would ever need in, in, my, tr- in my toiletry kit. Yeah. So it's it's figuring out how to make that packing process as easy as possible. I tend to wear the same things all the time. If you've right. seen me speak, you've probably seen me want to wear one of the three or four outfits that I tend to wear on stage. That's part of the, I thought that was part of the Karen McCrean it's, brand. Well, it's, it, 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 the, the quote-unquote personal brand. Yeah. No, it's really just... If you wear the same things all the time, yeah. then it makes your packing job easier, yeah. and you don't have to think about it as much. Right. I usually try to do like uh, solid colors. Yeah. That just that work well with any combination and stuff like yep. that. I feel like that's when my design degree kicks in right there. Just like, oh, mm-hmm. these all work together. Black and navy forgive a lot of sins. Yes. On the road. Exactly. So, cool. Um, I, don't, I think that's a good good starting point. Is there, you know, anything you um, want to bring up or mention or anything or just? Where can people find you next? Yeah, so. no, I'm really happy to get to talk to you. This is oh, yeah. a, this always fun to get to talk to you. I, I swear I want to bring up your injury, your work-related comp Oh, my, my my hand injury, I yes. felt bad because we talked the other day, and I joked that, that uh, because you travel so much, 
that that was because of uh, picking up your luggage. A suitcase related? No, it actually yeah. was a suitcase related actually, accident. And, and I was like, oh, man. <laughs> no, I, I, I heard the sad trombone in my head, like, oh. <laughs> no, that was totally appropriate. In yeah. fact, I, and it, it seems like a very... I didn't realize how easy it would be to drop my suitcase and yeah. injure myself, but yeah. apparently it was. Yeah. That's why they give those things wheels and a handle. I shouldn't have been carrying... I should not have been carrying it by the handle. Well, it's also like flying uh, in general, like in the aisle seat, it's like severely dangerous. One... Oh, it uh, is. Knee, uh, I got my knees have been like just banged by yeah. so many times, but also head injuries mm-hmm. because uh, you're directly above on most flights the uh, luggage area. Who among us hasn't had something dropped on their head by right. somebody putting a bag in the overhead compartment? I have. Right. Well, then I was reading someone that had a uh, vertical, uh, her spine had to have like it fused because it hit on her head and uh, it just caused back pain. And so That is my worst nightmare. Yeah. Can you imagine? Yeah. So I'm like, and, and um, my, part of my, my travel tricks is like, I have a Zuka, which I enjoy, which I'm like, you know what Zuka is? No. It is, it's actually a bag designed for students. Uh, and actually, um, because uh, students have to carry these large textbooks because ebooks aren't that great yet, um, and that um, it's like I don't know you're in you know, high school. Like I, my my back got wonk, got terribly wonky because of these huge history books and yep. English books, whatever. Yeah, they're all like six inches yeah, thick. Yeah, you know, and then you know the bags don't come with wheels, right? So uh, uh, this woman created a, a company to give book bags on wheels. However. Uh, and I think I believe her dad was an industrial engineer or something like that or whatever. So you can buy uh, these these bags called Zucas, Z-U-C-A, and you have to roll every piece of clothing, you know, which is like, no, this is awesome. Right. Um, and it's an industrial grade aluminum. It's like it's the same stuff that's made of uh, airplane wings. And uh, so you actually stand on your piece of luggage if you want to. And, uh, and it's just this awesome, awesome thing that you can just wheel around and, and so so basically if you have books or whatever you can just, you know, buy a special kid friendly uh, Zuka and just put your, put your stuff in there but all your stuff is uh, rolled up you know all your clothes are rolled up put in packages put in like pouches oh sure yeah, yeah pouches so you can just take them out and do what's with what mm-hmm. that so, and while my, my tricks for, for um, traveling so much is, is that I will unpack my bag every time even if I'm there for a day and just put it into the, uh, the drawers and stuff like that mm-hmm. just, just so I feel like a normal routine I have like a one day limit for that. If it's yeah. so, if I'm only staying overnight, I won't unpack. But otherwise, I will. I, I, I have to. I just I can't cannot not do that. So, and that's just I don't know. But yeah, each one yep. personal place. Yeah, no taste. people. I've I've heard a lot about the packing cubes thing. Yeah, like people who have packing cubes are seem to join then a packing cubes cult where they want to evangelize <laughs> the use of packing cubes. So no, I'm not cult. I just it works for me and. Uh, I, I love I love my Zuka because it's a very flat top, and I can use it as a seat if mm-hmm. I'm in line for a, getting onto a plane or off a plane, mm-hmm. or most likely I use it as a drink holder now. Right there, yeah. yeah. So, but, uh, but yeah, so uh, that's my my tip for there. Yeah, so. good luggage. I think I saw I saw a woman in the airport with some just like badly designed bag. Like yeah. the, the wheels were super wobbly, oh, yeah. and I just you know I'm like. Good design luggage, like easy to easy to use, yeah. solidly made luggage, totally worth it. Yes, and then um, I've given up my 17-inch uh, laptop for traveling because that's a stupid idea. Right. That was a stupid idea. Yeah. I can't believe that yeah. I did that. So, so I retired that one, and so MacBook Air if you can. Oh, Mac! So. My old MacBook Pro looks like such a tank now. <laughs> I'm like, I can't believe I ever carried that thing around. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's crazy. So. 
Cool, awesome. Um, so just, I guess I would wrap up. Uh, what thing are you uh, most fascinated or passionate about? I mean, we've talked about a lot of things already, but is there something non, you know, non-content strategy related, non-content you know, strategy or uh, content publishing that you're passionate about? But I'm super, well, I was just talking to some people on the internet about my deep, deep fondness and affection for computing history. Yeah. Like, I am such a nerd for, I guess, just like the historical yeah. foundations of our field. Yeah. And it, I, I'm sure this doesn't sound like the best hobby in the world, yeah. you know, if you're asking me for something different, but I think it's so sad that so many people don't know anything about the history of computers. Or I'll often ask people, like, do you, you know... Give me the names of the guys who invented the first computer, or right. you know, in, even in the United in the United States, like who invented the computer, and no one knows the answer. Yeah. Like, if you, you know, I bet I could get you to tell me the name of who invented the sewing machine or, or the cotton gin. You don't even know what a cotton gin is, and you know who invented it. Yeah. So I love talking about some of the inventors and founders who got us to where we are today, okay. and I think it's it's. I, I, it's the kind of thing where any chance anybody gives me to talk about computing history, I seize the opportunity just because I love to tell those stories. Okay, awesome. Well, we should. Like, what what stories is is uh, are you talking about? Like, like. Oh gosh, just like uh, I gave a little talk about this in London, um, talking about uh, Herman Hollerith, the guy who invented the punch card, mm -hmm. and his he. The, the U.S. Census in 1880 mm -hmm. was taking so long to count everybody yeah. that they were afraid it wasn't going to be done by the time they had to start doing the 1890 census. Yeah. And when you think about that, you realize, like, we are so spoiled by the fact that we have always lived in a world where we have machines to do math for us. Mm -hmm. Like, for all of human history, how hard it was to do math. And I don't even mean, like, higher-order math. I mean counting. Right. Imagine like what it would take to go around and count up everybody in the United States and yeah. you'd have like these paper ledgers and you'd be like carry the one. It'd be messy and error prone and time consuming. And so Hollerith, he was on a train and he saw this thing called a punch photograph. Mm -hmm. So it was like if you were on a train, some dick would come in and try to steal your seat. <laughs> so the, you know, you'd get up and go to the bathroom and you'd come back and yeah. there'd be some guy sitting in your seat. So the conductors would take what they called a punch photograph, which is that they'd have this little sheet and mm -hmm. it would punch like, okay, he's tall, he has brown hair, he wears glasses, and they'd put that on your, on your seat so yeah. that then they could check and see if the person who was sitting there actually matched it. So Hollerith was like, oh, what if you could use that to do tabulating? And yeah. he came up with the, with the first punch card readers. And Hollerith was, was kind of a dick. Mm -hmm. And lost his business or you know couldn't run it anymore and so that business was purchased by a, an investor and eventually became a little company known as International Business Machines okay. or IBM and so the story of how that like punch photograph hmm. became the infrastructure for how business computing operated in the 1920s mm -hmm. when we didn't even have computers all the way through the 1960s or 70s. Yeah. I mean, it was, you can see the photos of those IBM implementations mm -hmm. and it is the exact same infrastructure. I mean, right. it was like from 1920 to 1950 or so, right. they had calculating machines and they were kind of like, you don't need a computer, you can just use this calculator. Mm -hmm. 
And then, you know, eventually in the 50s, they were like, all right, we'll put a computer on there. Same exact input mechanism. It's fascinating. Yeah. Like, and, you know, that's just one of a million stories that are like, here's how we made these things. And it was exciting and dramatic and, and probably in many ways much more interesting than our startup culture today. <laughs> like, these people made the hardware. Like, yeah. they, like, yeah. invented this stuff. Well, it's also cool, like uh, to, uh, um, I know, the culture around technology at that time. Yeah. Right. I remember, like, uh, uh, my mother was growing up. Uh, I guess they they bought um, Archie comics back in the day, and so my grandmother saved them. And so when we come to visit, we'd have like, oh, here's Archie comics. They're like from like way back when. I'm like, okay, and there'd be like stories about punch cards. Yeah. What you know? Yeah. And it's just like, what the heck's going on? And There's nothing more fun than like the instructional videos that they put out from yeah. that era to explain how yeah. computers work to people. Oh yeah, oh, yeah. and then uh, for oh. Artifact Conference, which um, we did in Austin in May, uh, we do, uh, I'm not sure you've ever been to the, uh, well, we actually did the, uh, like a pre-show, what's called pre-show, so we had a video on loop before the conference started, before we did. So people were milling about in their seats, right? And so usually you, you play music during a conference, whatever, but we just, you know, we're in, we're in a theater, go for it, you know, use it, we use the projector. And we actually had um, a series of, uh, of uh, small videos, and m one of them, most of them were like, uh, of uh, what would happen movies if they had cell phones. Right. Right. And then the other thing was like, also talking about how people got to predicaments where their cell phones don't work. They, ha you know, like the movie fails if the actually cell phone actually works. Right. Yeah. <laughs> so it's just like. All these horror movies were like, oh, I can't get a signal. No. <laughs> oh, I'm dead. Uh, so it's 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 pretty funny. But uh, we also we also included a uh, how to use a phone with the new rotary. Yeah. So so you don't call up Marge anymore. Mm -hmm. Network. You have to like, you know, what that means. Like, what does the dial tone? Mean? How does the dial tone work? Yeah. Was it was it signify like, oh, is, yeah. it, is there a problem? Like, no. Oh, this is a busy signal. Yeah. This is a dial tone. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, all that stuff is. I, like I didn't even know that when I, when I first because I, I put that rule together. I'm like, wow, that, yeah, of course you had to have that stuff, and mm -hmm. and pretty much you know that video was probably shown in a movie theater. Like, Sh yeah, shown to classes of students in elementary yeah. school. Yeah. Oh man, that's good stuff. Yeah, and that, that's our that's our history. Yep. That's 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 our industry in America and the world's culture. So. Yeah. yeah. When you think that it's really only been sixty or seventy years. Yeah. I mean, and how much. This has changed civilization. It's right. it's astonishing. Well, and also like like the, the computer industry is like you know it's it's affected people's lives. I would say I'm just you know talking a lot, but to some degree like as like IBM 1920s and getting further like with a cell phone, people it, it, technology has become commonplace in people's worlds. It's only been recently within like you know the web blowing up that it's kind of democratized you know a lot more like people. Yeah. And it's become reliant on it, like you know, Wikipedia. Where would you be without Wikipedia right now? Right. Like I don't know. Uh, I don't know because my Breaking Bad, you know, fixes would be terrible. But um, but uh, just to go from that, I feel like we're going through this revolutionary, uh, not a revolution, but just trying this cultural or uh, shock, if you will, of trying mm -hmm. to come up with uh, issues with, with dealing with technology uh, databases, uh, poor databases. And you were talking about kind of management systems, all day. What if uh, a company that um, uh, has to build this. Their, their whole company is based off of building their own custom database to like if it's government to a lowest common, lowest bidder, 
what happens then and stuff like that. So, and I'm not sure if I should still tell the story, but I, I'm going to tell it anyway. But uh, uh, I was actually a, uh, I was uh, taking a nap. I got woken up by the U.S. Postal Service, and they said like, "Hey, you have a certified letter." Uh, which is never good. Which yeah, I was totally like, <laughs> and then you panic like <laughs> this I'm can't like, be good. <laughs> and then, um, and it was it was came from the uh, Austin, uh, uh, I guess the city. I'm not sure it was the, or the county uh, adult probation department. And I was like, um, like what? Are what? you on adult probation? <laughs> yeah. So then I opened it up. And I'm like, hey, uh, you have not, uh, uh, as the court has instructed gone to your probation like you know, talk to your probation officer or hearings whatever like that and I'm like and there was just like this person's name and the phone number and I was like uh what and so I call him up and I'm like hey how's it going I need to talk to you, blah 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 okay hold on and so I'm waiting for like a minute I'm like what, what could this possibly be and then while the person gets on the phone says like uh yeah hey um why haven't you uh been you know why haven't you come in like the court instructed you to do I'm like, well, the last time I was in court was for jury duty, and I thought that the judge excused me. <laughs> so I'm not sure what this is about. And you're like, like what? It's like, yeah, yeah, I was jury duty like you know six months ago, and I got excused, and it was all right, it was all right. And I was like, well, are you uh, Christopher Schmidt? Like, yeah, yeah, I totally am. Are, are you uh, at this address? I'm like, yeah, I got, yeah, I served, I got, I got your letter. That's why I'm calling. <laughs> and. Uh, and um, are you living? Uh, are you living? You know, and it's like, well, how old are you? I'm like, well, I'm this old. And I'm like, total pause, right? Oh, it's like, uh, was, was that the birth date you were expecting? Like, uh, no. So there's another Christopher Schmidt who is in deep trouble mm-hmm. in Austin, Texas. Mm-hmm. But I, I couldn't. I've been like, you know, I didn't know if we had to follow up on this or not, or just like leave Lion Dogs really late. But uh, just like, how did they come to the idea that I was? This right. person, when obviously I was not at any point in time with this person whatsoever, and that that scares me is the fact that you know there's people with databases that can just mess you up. And actually, it was part of my paper for one of my papers for grad school was like in uh, new communication technologies was like databases are awesome, uh, except when you need to change information. Yes. Yeah. Except when you got to move from one database to another. Yeah, or like you know revise things, update it, delete yep. it, things. You know, like Facebook doesn't delete things. You know, apparently they. They'll turn off the switch. They're like, oh, well, we'll make this visible. So yeah. So so that that kind of stuff, like you know, like is worrisome, and I feel like that's part of the the culture thing that we have to deal with. Like, how do we address it when everything is uh, uh, broadcasted and then reflected back on itself within minutes, hours? Mm-hmm. Especially like you know, uh, one of the worst things that can happen is a natural tragedy, and then people on Twitter uh, who are idiots and you know. You know, making judgments about it and some of that, yeah. and within like two minutes of something happening, you know, that's the most depressing thing that can happen out there. So, so I don't know. Yeah, yeah. I thought it's like our our dystopian world. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Welcome to it. So anyway, so that's a nice depressing way to end it. So, uh, but um, so so um, so computer history is awesome and definitely take a look, take a look at it. Um, have you been to the Intel Museum? No, I haven't. I actually, I also haven't been to the Computer History Museum in San Jose, okay. which is like so high on my list of places that I want to go. I'm gonna make a special pilgrimage out there. Is that just the official? Computer I history? think it's like the. I think it's probably the largest one in the okay. U.S. Yeah. 
Paul Allen also has one in mm-hmm. Seattle that I'm dying to go to. I have a long list of is that, is that computing the one history the, museums that I want to go to. Is that the one in the, um, the Seattle, the Space Needle area? That the, uh, I think so, yeah. Oh, yeah, okay. Yep. Yeah. Uh, maybe that's... Yep. Should be the third on your list, probably. I think that's, that's. And there's the British Computing Society Museum yeah, that yeah. I also haven't been to. Okay. So I got a, I got a lot of places to go. Okay. Awesome. Well, I think the way you're going probably will be there sooner than, than most people. <laughs> so. Cool. Um, so how can people find you on the internet and, and web? And best place Twitter? to look is uh, Karen McGrain on Twitter. Okay. Um, I also have KarenMcGrain.com. I also have uh, BondArtAndScience.com. If you want to send me a, a little. If you want to send me an email, that, okay. there's a contact form there. And do you update your, your lanyard page, or, or where can people find your speaking schedule? You know, I don't... I, oh, you know, the best place to look for that is lanyard. Lanyard? Okay, yep. lanyard. That is all up there. Okay, cool. Definitely, if you yeah, do yourself a favor, if, you know, if Kimber Green is in your neighborhood, check her out, because you do a great talk, and I, I, I highly recommend it. So, well, thank you so much for Yeah, thank you. This is great. Okay, awesome.